Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to get digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are thousands of titles to choose from in a multitude of genres, and you can play them on just about any device, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, you name it. And here's a terrific deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get some Pulitzer Prize-winning audiobooks. Get The Brief, Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow by Juno Diaz. Or get The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11 by New Yorker staff writer Lawrence Wright. Or what about Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout? Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. It's a terrific deal. It's available now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right, right. Okay, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Welcome back to the program. It's good to be with you. Thank you very much for tuning in. Uh, today's guest is Barry Eisler. He's the author of several best-selling thrillers. Uh, most recently, a book called The Detachment. It's part of the John Rain series. Maybe you've read some of his books. Maybe you've heard about him in the news. He has been in the news over the past uh, year here and there. And uh, he's an unusually passionate and articulate guy on a variety of subjects, everything ranging from uh, civil liberties to the rule of law, uh, geopolitics, the news media, publishing, all of it he can talk about uh, with unusual clarity and insight and uh, enthusiasm. So very interesting guest. Another thing to mention is that he has worked for the CIA in a covert position. Uh, he's done that. He's worked for technology startups. He's lived overseas. He has a law degree. He's Ivy League educated. And, uh, you know, just very compelling, very interesting. Uh, he's a black belt, I believe, in judo. So there's that. And then on the publishing side, most recently, he made news by turning down a $500,000 advance from St. Martin's. Uh, it was a two-book deal, and he turned it down, and he instead decided to self-publish, citing, uh, you know, in a general sense, changes in the industry and a belief that he could do better on his own. So it's a ballsy decision any way you look at it, and uh, Barry and I are going to talk about all of that in just a moment. 
Uh, before I begin, I want to uh, discuss uh, a shopping experience that I had. It is the holiday season, uh, and I did have an unusual retail sighting. Um, you know, I was reading actually a, a literary blog, as I often do, and uh, I was reading about Jack Kerouac soap, which is uh, apparently now for sale on a site called Etsy.com. That's E-T-S-Y.com. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of that site before. My guess is that if you're a female, uh, the answer is probably yes. And if you're a, if you're a straight guy, I'm thinking like the odds are maybe 30%, maybe 20% that you're aware of it. But, uh, you know, me personally, I, kn- I didn't know about Etsy until recently. And uh, just as a matter of coincidence, uh, I was over there shopping because friends of mine just launched a clothing line for uh, children. It's a kid's clothing line, and I'll give it a plug. It's called Alice and Lois. That's the name of the line. And uh, their stuff is available for sale over at Etsy. So, uh, you know, they're buddies of mine. I went over there and I was uh, buying a skirt for my daughter. And I was looking around uh, and, you know, just sort of perusing. And as best as I can tell, Etsy is kind of a a place for stylish, crafty, artsy stuff. You know, Uh, I didn't spend an, an enormous amount of time there, but that's just my general assessment. So anyway, there's a marketplace over there, and uh, there is somebody, uh, a merchant at this uh, at this site, Etsy, who is selling Jack Kerouac soap. And I read about this on a literary blog. And uh, apparently, when you buy this Jack Kerouac soap, it is a bar of soap with a black and white photo of Kerouac embedded into the soap. And uh, I don't even know what that means, particularly the word embedded. Uh, you know, is it like the, the, the photo is like baked in there? It's like baked into the soap. And if that's the case, I wonder how well you can even see the photo. Because even when soap is clear, like even when you're dealing with like a bar of Neutrogena, uh, I'm not sure if you could really see clearly through the soap and, you know, and really be able to tell who's in a photo. You know, do you know what I'm saying? I'm thinking that it would be blurry and would, would therefore kind of defeat the whole purpose. So another thing from this literary uh, site that I wrote down, this is a direct quote. It says, the soap maker will add your choice of scents, like coconut, cucumber, or poetry. So there's a scent called poetry. And uh, it goes on to say that the latter scent, the poetry scent, smells like sunflower and powder. So no word on what kind of powder, but the seller labels the scent as unisex. So I'm thinking to myself, powder... Like, are we talking baby powder? Are we talking talcum powder? Or is this some sort of beatneck drug reference? Is it code, you know? Is it like uh, crushed benzedrine? It smells like sunflower and benzedrine? Or sunflower and cocaine? You know, it's like it's like actually like, you know, amphetamine soap that you use. So, you know, and then just to, just to kind of rewind for a second, just the mere fact that the scent is called poetry, that, that, that you know, that this is something that actually exists... Somebody asks you, you know, what's that smell? And you tell them it's poetry. I mean, seriously? So anyway, uh, you know, I I find this product sort of absurd. And it makes me think about the commodification of artists, you know, and how you take an artist and you use that artist and his likeness or her likeness or his brand or her brand, as it were, and you use it to sell product, you know. And it, excuse me, it's just like a, it's a huge... uh, it seems to be a huge mismatch of, of a person and product. Jack Kerouac soap. Do you really want a famous writer in your bar of soap? Like, do you really want like John Kennedy tool in your, in your bar of soap? 
I don't know if I want that. You know what I'm saying? So I could be imagining this wrong too, but it seems like the only way that you could even tell who, you know, who it is who's in the photo with like real clarity and, uh, and certainty would be to scrub yourself until the bar of soap disappears, which would require like a lot of violent scrubbing if you're trying to get through it in one session. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to imagine who would even use this product. And I'm, I'm sort of envisioning maybe a pseudo beatnik of 2011 out there on the road. You know, is that who this is for? You take your Jack Kerouac soap out on the road. It's your travel soap. But, you know, even if you take it and then you decide you're going to try to figure out, you know, exactly who's in the photo and you do all that scrubbing and you work that hard, you're still going to have kind of a slimy photo at the end. It's going to still have stuff on it. It's, it's going to be all wet. I just don't understand it. You know, I, I'm thinking this might be the worst product design in history, unless I'm mistaken and the whole concept and execution is different from my vision. So anyway, I guess there's only one way to find out. And, uh, you know, if anybody out there listening wants to buy me some Jack Kerouac soap as a Christmas present, some poetry scented Jack Kerouac soap, just let me know, just email me and uh, I will accept gifts of Jack Kerouac soap just to satisfy my curiosity. So there's that. And then, uh, before I get to the show, I want to do some mail. I have been getting lots of nice emails and tweets and Facebooks over the past couple of weeks. Many thanks to everybody who's written in. Uh, I got a letter from a girl named Charlotte and, uh, she lives in Pueblo, Colorado. And she says, dear Brad, I loved it when you read bad sex writing with that porn music. I was in my car drinking a diet Coke and almost spit up on myself and my friend Jessica, can you please read some more? Pretty please, pretty please. And then in all caps, she writes, more baby more. Thanks, Charlotte. So, okay, Charlotte, uh, you know, you're actually not the only person who made this request. There are people out there uh, who wanted to hear some more. They're fans of the Bad Sex and Fiction Award, which of course is given out every year in the UK by the Literary Review. Um, and David Gooderson, I should mention again, won it this year for his novel, Ed King. And I was reading from his, uh, from his work, I think in the last show or two shows ago, something like that. So I'll read one more. Um, we'll do it one more time. This is a passage from a book called, uh, one Q eight, four, the new one from Haruki Murakami. Uh, he was also a nominee. So here's the passage in question from one Q eight, four. Just, uh, let me, let me cue the music here. Having brought Tango deep inside her, Fuku Iri remained utterly still, as did Tango, feeling himself deep inside of her. He remained incapable of moving his body, and she, eyes closed, perched on top of him like a lightning rod, stopped moving. He could see that her mouth was slightly open, and her lips were making delicate, rippling movements, as if groping in space to form some kind of words. In the next second, Tengo realized that he was ejaculating. The violent spasm went on for several seconds, releasing a great deal of semen in a powerful surge. Where is my semen going? Tengo's garbled mind wondered. Ejaculating like this after school in a grade school classroom was not an appropriate thing to do. He could be in trouble if someone saw him. But this was not a grade school classroom anymore. Now he realized that he was inside Fuka'iri, ejaculating toward her uterus. This was not something that he wanted to be doing, but he could not stop himself. Everything was happening beyond his control. 
All right, uh, so there you have it, folks. You got your wish. There's some more bad sex uh, writing from uh, Haruki Murakami. I hope it uh, was enjoyable. I hope it was worth it. It's time now for Barry Eisler. Prepare yourselves. He's a uh, he's a force. He was in the CIA. I should mention that. Did I say that he's a black belt? For all I know, he could be watching all of us right now on closed circuit television in some sort of undisclosed location. And uh, I'm pretty sure he could kill me with his bare hands. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. You know, I think one of the challenges, uh, you know, is trying to sift through all that's sure. out there, and there's a lot. Sure. And knowing when you're dealing with something that's reputable or with somebody who's got the best of intentions sure. and somebody who might be like a crackpot or a bit unhinged, you yeah. know, which a lot of people in the blogosphere can be. Sure. So, well, it, everything you just said applies to um, mainstream true. establishment journalism, too. But yeah, all yeah, of it. Yeah, all yeah. of it. It's like, how do you sift? You know, yeah. and, and you almost need uh, people to be watchdogs of the media. You need to know who good media critics are so that you can sure, you know, parse the information well. Yeah, there are, and and there are people who are um, who are doing an excellent job in that role. I think Glenn Greenwald is one and anybody who's listening. I mean, if you want a, a slightly different perspective, I would highly recommend just Google Glenn with two ends, Glenn Greenwald. And then there's another guy named Jay Rosen who's a professor at NYU's journalism school and he's got a blog called Think Press. I'm sorry, Press Think. And he's another one who can really open your eyes and just make you a, a more educated consumer of media to see, like, what are you really being fed here and, uh, and how should you consume it? So, so people like Glenn and Jay, I think, are, are really performing a tremendously useful function. And John, John Stewart's another one, actually. I was just going to say, that's, that's, what media the, critic. that's what the Daily Show is. It's, exactly. a, it's, it's like a media filter. Yeah, he's hilarious. But, uh, but if you watch enough John Stewart, you'll develop a much more... Uh, a tuned set of critical faculties when it comes to understanding the way uh, media is trying to manipulate you in various ways. So, um, so yeah, we have these people who I think are um, are serving a very useful function in helping educate people about how the media really works. But I also think that the blogosphere is very well suited for people who want to make up their own mind. I mean, just think about this for one second. Look at Tom Friedman. Tom Friedman has won the New York Times columnist. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes. And yet he's been wrong about every single thing he's ever opened his mouth about. The reasons for the war in Iraq, the duration and nature of the war in Iraq. He was one of its cheerleaders. He's never, he's never apologized except in the, in the lamest possible way of saying, well, you know, I really thought that the Bush administration would be able to prosecute this war. I mean, who knew? As though that absolves him in some way of responsibility for cheerleading 
for this war, which has uh, which has claimed over five thousand the lives of over five thousand American servicemen, tens of thousands uh, maimed, burned, blinded, brain damaged, crippled. Um, by conservative estimates, a hundred thousand dead Iraqi civilians. That's conservative. Get your mind around that. A hundred thousand in eight years. It's it's mind boggling. And two million internally displaced refugees and two million externally displaced. I mean, we practically destroyed that country. And a guy like Tom Friedman, who cheerleaded for the war, the most he can say about his role in cheerleading for the war is, well, I thought the Bush administration would would do a better job of waging the war. Who knew? <laughs> so a guy like this who's been wrong about everything he touches. And yet he's got a brand because he writes for the New York Times and so people trust him. But think about this. Does Tom Friedman engage readers? Does he, does he get comments uh, on his New York Times page? Does he engage with people who um, – with any of his readers? And the answer is no. I mean occasionally the New York Times through a heavily filtered and inefficient archaic process will publish a letter to the editor. But even then, Tom Friedman doesn't respond to the letter to the editor. How much can you trust a journalist who's afraid to and unwilling to engage with his or her readers? I would say just as a matter of common sense, I mean, if I were a Martian and I didn't know much about media and I asked asked the Martian that question, I think the Martian would say, well, I mean, somebody who won't answer questions from the people he's purporting to address probably lacks a certain amount of confidence and integrity. In the blogosphere, uh, you can see, I mean, there are some bloggers who will have comments turned off and you can, ju- you can form your own judgment about someone who won't allow comments on his or her blog. But, uh, but most bloggers, and certainly the ones I trust, allow comment, not only allow comments, but respond to comments, engage with their readers and with other bloggers, of course. So, and so it's, it's a dialogue rather exactly. than, yeah. It's, it's a dialogue and it's a peer-reviewed system. And so as a consumer of news, even if you know nothing else, you're going to get a lot of conflicting opinions and engagement right there on the page that should, first of all, give you some confidence that you're dealing with someone who's not afraid uh, of, uh, to, to back up his or her opinions and assertions, number one. And number two, you're actually going to get the back and forth right there in real time with links, which is another thing that digital, that the internet allows, that paper never did. Actual links to primary sources that you can check out for yourself to help you over time determine, hey, is this someone with in- integrity, with, uh, with a consistent worldview, uh, who's able to back up the positions that he or she takes on the internet? You can start to make up that you can make that determination yourself by how the person engages with readers and, and by going to the primary sources cited in, uh, in the blogger's own blog. So if you think about it, the blogosphere, in my opinion, is actually better suited to a well-informed citizenry making up its own mind about the quality of the information it's being pre- and opinions it's being presented. Uh, if, you, if you're something like the New York Times and the Washington Post – Ask any American. Ask any American who reads the New York Times, the newspaper record. Why do you trust the New York Times? Ask them that, and I guarantee you what they're going to say is, "Well, it's the New York Times." <laughs> right. It's a brand thing. It's so the you brand. You can trust us because we have a brand, and that's bullshit. It's bullshit. It's archaic and it's illogical. So, I mean, I understand how powerful brands can be. I get that, but it's not a good reason to trust someone just because you know, I just kind of feel like they have a good brand. Or I'm just familiar with it. It's comfortable. Exactly. Everybody. Everybody reads the New York Times. They, they must be good. Well, okay. So let's let's take it back then. Uh, you know, because clearly, I'm, I'm assuming that your interest in this stuff goes back a ways. But it, it seems, or, or tell me if I'm wrong. Like. The, you join the you join the CIA. Right. You make this decision. You're in law school at the time, or you just finished. I applied when I was in law school and got the offer late in my third year. So so I started 
with the CIA, and it must have been August 89, just a couple months after I graduated, a few months after I graduated law school. Okay, so I'm assuming that the, the work that you did in the CIA informed your understanding of the media and how it operates with respect to uh, government intel or whatever, geopolitics, all that stuff, correct? Yeah, yeah to some extent I could see inside the CIA the way uh, people who work inside the government view the press and uh, it's interesting. I mean, of course, you look at the media. If you're inside the government, you look at the media as something that you ideally that you could control, you could actually control. But you don't really need to control it because it's so easy to manipulate. I mean, why control what you can easily manipulate? Why pay for what you can get for free? And, uh, and so you want to suborn and subvert people who would otherwise be performing a watchdog function. And again, if you think people in the military are superb at this, but also people in the CIA, high-level politicians, they're great at it. What's sad is not that the government wants to subvert and suborn what should be a disinterested, honest, watchdog media. That's natural, of course. That's just human nature. It would be bizarre if it were otherwise. Uh, what's sad is how badly the so-called watchdog media wants to be suborned. They want to suck up to power. They want to be on the inside. And Glenn they want to be friends with them. Absolutely. And Glenn Greenwald, uh, the blogger I mentioned earlier, who's got a terrific new book, by the way, called um, With Liberty and Justice for Some, about America's two-tiered system of justice and the way the system is rigged against the 99%. Glenn writes about this sort of thing quite often and, and uh, how the prototypical journalist the the way the journalist should should actually be would be essentially an outsider who doesn't want to be uh, part of the establishment the oligarchy the inside doesn't want to be an insider uh, distrusts establishments and wants to hold them to account doesn't go to the parties doesn't doesn't intermarry with the establishment uh, figures who uh, he or she is is supposed to be um, keeping in check and holding to account. And if you look at today's media stars, they absolutely defy that description. They're paid, a lot of this has to do with the rise of television, but uh, today's media stars, how can they be watchdog journalists when they're making millions of dollars doing what they do? Yeah, the, they television, the, the television pundits, the television pundits, it's like a club in Washington. That's exactly right. They go to the same parties. I mean, they do, in fact, go to the same parties. John McCain, I mean, they, and they're proud of it. That's the saddest part. They, they've even lost sight of the fact that they've been suborned. They, they love it so much. I mean, John McCain, when he was running uh, against Obama in 2008, had a party at his house and they had a tire swing and his daughter, Meghan McCain, blogged about it. And she was talking about all the reporters on the tire swing. And then Ron, Rahm Emanuel had a, a barbecue at his house shortly after the inauguration, invited all his favorite reporters. You can't go. I mean, if Americans, if you just think about this, you can't associate with the people you're trying to cover this way and still be expected to cover them. Yeah, it should be, it's like unethical. There should be a house rule against that, right? It really should be. Or at not, least, not, a, not a house of representatives, uh, but uh, like a, a journalistic exactly. rule. If, if you're a journalist with integrity, you can't go to the same parties. You can't become part of the society and the system that you've promised to hold to account. It's just impossible. So, uh, you have to guard against it. But okay. most reporters have no interest at all in guarding against it because they want to be insiders. They want to suck up to power. It's just the way they're built. Okay. Well, so the CIA. Yes. I, I mean, I don't mean to keep hammering this, but like I'm <laughs> fascinated okay. by it. Like you, you apply, you get in. How does one start working at the CIA? Or there's a, there's like an office, and you meet people, and there's <laughs> cubicles, or right. a, is it like the Bourne identity? Like, well, you know, no. give me give me a picture. Um, the the funny thing about the Bourne movies and other and, and shows like Twenty Four that depict the CIA or CIA style 
uh, U.S. intelligence organizations is they typically depict them as these ruthlessly efficient uh, organizations. And the truth is they're anything but. It's funny how people know that the government is inefficient. We know that. If you've ever gone to the DMV or the post office, you just know that the government is not a terribly efficient place. And uh, for some reason, that understanding of, of how the government functions just goes out the window when people think of an intelligence agency. They go, oh, I know the government's not, a, not efficient, but that's the CIA. The CIA, <laughs> actually, they're badasses. But, but exactly. But, you know, but the CIA actually is the government. It's like all these people who, who say, they're, I'm a small government conservative, but America has to spend more on its military than the rest of the world combined. I sometimes say in those situations, you do realize that the military is part of the government, right? I mean, you can argue for a big military. That's fine. You can. You can say we, we need an even bigger military, that it's not enough that we spend more on our military than the rest of the world spends on its military combined. You can make that argument, but you cannot then also say that you are somehow in favor of small government. That's insane. Anyway, with the CIA, people think that, uh, yeah, sure, I know the government's not all that efficient, but this is the CIA, as though the CIA somehow defies uh, the laws of government ineptitude and incompetence, which is, if you think about it, just kind of silly. So I like to sometimes say, to give people a, a more accurate picture, is that the CIA is like the post office, but with spies. <laughs> it's subject to the same rules. Yeah. And, uh, and that was a good education for me because uh, from the outside looking in, I probably thought, wow, you know, these guys are the bomb. And uh, well, they are the bomb in another way. <clears throat> a guy named um, – uh, I'm blanking on his name, not Tim Wise. He's someone else who writes about um, – Timothy Weiner or Weiner? Tim Weiner. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Um, Tim Weiner wrote a great book called Legacy of Ashes in which he argues quite persuasively that America would have been safer and richer if the CIA had uh, had never existed in the first place. So monumental is well, the it's, record it's not of failure. I mean, it's not in the Constitution that such an organ... I mean, I've read... I, I'm not the person to talk about this, but I remember reading, I think, Gore Vidal, like some of his essays, and he was always an opponent because it, it winds up being sort of a, a private army or private... Not a private... You know what I'm saying? Sure, some, sure. Well, there's always a danger that any uh, any intelligence or law enforcement organization is going to be turned against the citizenry, either <clears throat> whether in contravention of laws or the laws will be altered to allow it to happen. And, and we've got a long history of that in the United States. Anyone who's interested in this topic, I would recommend just Google COINTELPRO. It's spelled like the word COIN, um, uh, C-O-I-N-T-E-L-P-R-O, COINTELPRO. Just Google COINTELPRO and you'll learn all about a uh, long and sordid history of illegal CIA and FBI efforts against uh, American citizens and lawful, uh, constitutionally protected activities by American citizens. So this is nothing new. But I wouldn't argue that, um, that because various uh, organs of power, such as the CIA and the NSA and, um, and the FBI, have, turned, have been turned against the citizenry from time to time and are being uh, used against the citizenry right now and will be again. I wouldn't argue that because of all of that, that such organizations are by definition unconstitutional. I, I wouldn't uh, make that argument myself. I, I think that, um, at least in theory, there is a way to have, for example, a, a domestic law enforcement agency like the FBI or an overseas intelligence organization like the CIA completely consistent with the Constitution. What about you, military intelligence? performing the function of the CIA. Does that, does that square? I think I remember reading something about that that made some sense to me, but again, it's coming from such a limited perspective. Well, a lot of the functions since 9-11 have, have started to heavily overlap because, this, because the CIA, and, and, and just like many domestic, uh, domestic law enforcement agencies, the CIA has become so heavily militarized since 9-11. So it's no 
coincidence that uh, General David Petraeus of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan has just been, Obama just named him as head of the CIA. The CIA has become significantly uh, militarized even since I left in 1992. So there's more and more overlap between what the military does and, the CIA and what the CIA does. In fact, the CIA is running its own drone war in Pakistan and Yemen, <clears throat> Somalia and elsewhere. And so this is, this is not intelligence gathering. This is... Um, I'm trying to think of non-loaded ways to say it. Let's just call it action, I mean, direct action. They're actually killing people. So there's a lot of overlap, and uh, a lot of it is disturbing. A guy named Scott Horton, who blogs for Harper's, um, is, has been great about that. Scott is an international human rights lawyer and an expert on the laws of war, and this is one of the disturbing things about the fact that the CIA is assuming functions that used to be exclusively associated with the military is that there's no clear chain of command in the CIA. Uh, CIA officers are not schooled in the laws of war. <clears throat> they don't wear uniforms, and so theoretically under the Geneva Conventions, by our own arguments, CIA operators who are launching drones overseas are by our own legal definitions, they're terrorists. They are not uniformed personnel uh, on the battlefield. They're far from the battlefield. They're killing people, and, they don't, and they're not part of any established military hierarchy, and they don't wear a uniform. This is really problematic if you believe in the rule of law, which I know, ha-ha. So, uh, but anyway, again, I wouldn't say on a constitutional basis. I mean, the Constitution clearly provides for a military, and I have no problem with the military um, having uh, an intelligence function too, as long as that intelligence function is reasonably related to military operations overseas. It's when all these, uh, when all these capabilities, wiretapping and surveillance and psyops operations, I think the military calls that marketing operations now, but um, I love how they prettify things like that. <laughs> when those sorts of things that, um, that should be, and in fact legally are restricted to overseas operations against foreigners, when those sorts of things are brought home to America and turned against the American citizenry as the Church Commission, which investigated all sorts of CIA abuses in 1975, uh, predicted that they would be. When these sorts of things happen, then you are talking about not only illegal activity, but activity that is, that is highly caustic to uh, freedom and democracy. Well, okay. So what were you doing... For the CIA, like, do you can you talk about it? I never know how to even ask those questions. Like, yeah. what was your work experience? Like, I, where were you? What were you doing? So, I didn't do very much in the CIA. I'm really not the greatest guy to ask. I was only there for three years. I didn't serve overseas, and uh, most of it was training. I left because I got frustrated with the bureaucracy, and it was taking too long to get sent to Japan. I was in Japanese language training. Uh, Langley is a really boring place. No, no case officer wants to be at Langley. It's just it's boring. Why Japan? I got interested in Japan when I was in college. I started doing some Japanese martial arts. Um, oh, that's right. You're like a black belt in judo, right? Yeah, but I, I feel like that you should have to renew your your black belt license periodically yeah. to keep it. I mean, I am I am a first degree black belt that I earned it at the Kodokan in 1994. I trained there uh, obsessively. I was talking, you know, when I get into something, I really get into it. When I lived in Tokyo for the first time, 93 to 94, I was training at the Kodokan five or six days a week. Well, really in the Kodokan for people? Sorry, the, the Kodokan is the birthplace of modern judo. Uh, Jigoro Kano, the guy who invented so this wasn't like judo. this wasn't like some strip mall judo. This was like... No, no, this is, this is like judo mecca. Yeah. So it was a really cool place to train. And uh, uh, so, yeah, I did earn my black belt there, but that was in 1994. And since then... I've messed around with um, with Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, which I love. I like grappling styles. I wrestled in high school, as I mentioned. So, but these days I don't I don't really train regularly, and my judo if I, oh, I'd be embarrassingly rusty. But okay, anyway. okay. So, have you ever been in a fight where you've used it? Uh, yeah, 
Really? Yeah. Like when? Where? I mean, not, not in, not just in like on, a, just on the way over here. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> not in a tournament, but I mean, have you yeah, ever yeah, been yeah. like somewhere like at a bar and somebody mouths off to you or what, you know, something like that? Well, yeah. I mean, I try to, you know, when you define use, I mean, it's like use it physically. Yes, I've done that. But then also, um, uh, this is, this is a, it's all, it's whole, its own separate topic of conversation. And before I get into it, because I'll forget anyone who's interested in this kind of thing, like, you know, martial arts as part of a self-defense system or that sort of thing. If you're interested in martial arts, self-defense, violence, generally, uh, let me recommend a website. It's called no nonsense, self-defense.com. That's just one, all one word, no nonsense, self-defense.com or NNSD.com. And, uh, as the site says, bring a cup of coffee. You'll be here for a while. It's a really great website that can, that can tell you far, far more about all of this than, uh, than I ever could or would be able to in a, in a short time frame. But look, if you're interested in defending yourself, the most important thing is not your martial arts skills. And, and sometimes it's, you know, I'm not, it's not that I'm unwilling to talk about that, but, but it sort of, re- it, it focuses on something that shouldn't really be the focus because it's not the most cost effective. Martial arts is, by, is, is actually the most cost ineffective, cost the least efficient way of protecting yourself. And if there are some martial arts uh, artists listening, they're probably getting pissed at me now. Um, so let me explain what I mean. I'm not saying that martial arts isn't relevant to and useful to effective self-defense. Of course it is. But your martial arts is going to be your innermost layer of defense. I mean, if you have to use your martial arts to um, to defend yourself, then by definition, your outer layers of defense must have failed. So for example, what's the best way to protect yourself? Is it Mace? Is it to fight your maze? Taser? Then, these are actually, it's a good question. Maze, taser, firearms, all these sorts of things, weapons, should be your innermost layer of self-defense. Because what's more effective? What's going to be safer, more likely to have a positive outcome, um, uh, entail less risk of injury, death, legal jeopardy, whatever? Is it going to be fighting your way out of an ambush? Is that your most cost-effective way of dealing with a potential ambush or fighting your way out of a mugging or a bar fight or whatever? Or would it be more effective, more uh, cost-effective and more efficient and, uh, and have, a better odds, have better odds of success all the way around to spot the ambush or the mugging or the bar fight or whatever before it even happens and just don't be there? Don't be there when it happens. To me, I mean, this is axiomatic, and that's why I like, I, I like to explain it. I'm not saying, I'm, look, I'm a martial artist. I love this stuff. I've trained in a variety of styles. I'm really into it. It's great. It's effective. It's fun. And you, and you could physically subdue 99% of people who oh, might come at you. I don't know about nine. I mean, you know. You I, could I, physically subdue the 99%. <laughs> Luckily, I am part of the 99%. <laughs> um, I wouldn't want to be one of the 1%. But, look, I've got a lot of friends who, who I think really do walk the walk. Who, are, who really are expert martial artists who really have engaged in um, in significant violence and a significant number of times who who I'm in awe of. And so when I talk about my own abilities, um, I think my own abilities are, are severely wanting by comparison to some of the people who I am fortunate enough to know and who I admire. But, um, but what I would say is, yeah, I mean, I've trained a fair amount. And so if... Um, on those uh, mercifully infrequent occasions where my uh, outer layers of my defense system have failed, I've been fortunate enough to so that the innermost layers um, have held fast and saved the day. But again, for anyone who really wants to, if you really want to be safe in the world, um, studying martial arts is really not the most effective, efficient, let's use that word. It's not the most efficient way to do it. It's not that it's not valuable. It's just not the most efficient way. It's just like having a gun in your house is... Uh, 
I think it's a great idea as a, as your innermost layer of self-defense if you're properly trained. And, and by properly trained, I mean you've, you've done a lot of training under adrenal stress and with scenario-based training, et cetera. Okay, uh, it's good to have that innermost layer. But it shouldn't be your only layer, and it's certainly not your most efficient layer. How about just having good locks on the doors and windows? Um, that's a lot more efficient and effective and involves a lot less chance of injury, death, or legal jeopardy than having to shoot the man in the black ski mask once he's appeared in your house. I mean, that's not where you want to be. That's or have one of those you know, those house alarm commercials where the person breaks in. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Uh, there are these terrible commercials where, like, the, the alarm goes off and it's like, you know, a woman comes home and they're very melodramatic. Right. You, you kind of have to have seen them. Okay. <laughs> well, I get the idea. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I've got that inner, that innermost layer of security. But what I, what I practice and try to live much more consistently these days is to is my awareness and avoidance skills. Uh, and again, so anyone who's listening, if you really want to practice this stuff, check out nnsd.com, the website I just mentioned. But also just get in the habit of thinking like a criminal. If the thing you're worried about is crime, try to think like a criminal. If you were going to mug someone or you're going to rob a car or you're going to try to get cash fast or something like that, what would you do? Where would you go? What would you look for? Try to do that. And that will help you when you think like the opposition, it'll help you tune up your awareness and avoidance skills, all of which are a much more cost-effective way of protecting yourself in the world than becoming some sort of expert martial artist. And so, and, and so what about like the crane technique? Is that real? Is that, is that an actual kick? I mean, I feel like that's kind of I my... Don't, I don't really know enough about Chinese styles to say. Um, so yeah, I'm not really sure. You have no idea. No comment on the crane technique. <laughs> no comment on the crane. I liked it in the first Karate Kid. Okay. So uh, you're in the CIA. You're in Japan. You're studying judo at the Kodokan. At the Kodokan. Um, you become a black belt. You, you're writing all the time, all this time when you're living over there. Yeah, that's when I started the first book. When I was first living in Tokyo, I just got this idea—an image, really, of two men following another man down the street in a part of the city called Shibuya on Dogenzaka Street. And it was a vivid image, and it stayed with me. And I started asking questions about it: well, Who are these guys? Why are they following this other guy? And then answers started to come to me. I thought, "They're assassins. They're going to kill him," which only led to more questions, like. Well, okay, but why? Who hired them? What did he do? Where did they come from? How do you become an assassin? How do you get into the business? So, see, this this is the thing, though, is that, like, you know, you're writing these thrillers, and they're, you know, you've worked for the CIA, so, like, I think the natural leap to make from the outside looking in is that this is some, somehow derived from your personal experience. Like, did you know assassins? Did you work with assassins? Were you a hired assassin? No. Um, no. And, you know, assassin's a word we... We don't really think about it that much. I mean, we use it mostly in fiction or if someone, if some person who's unauthorized to use violence uh, kills a president, for example, that's your classic, everyone agrees that that was an assassination. But it's not used so much for U.S. government uh, activities. In fact, one of the, uh, one of the euphemisms that, that has crept into the vernacular in the last few years is um, targeted killing. A lot of times you'll hear about targeted killings. Occasionally uh, you'll hear about a targeted assassination, which is redundant. So I find it doubly irritating. But <clears throat> you know, this is what I was talking about a little while ago. It's not torture. It's enhanced interrogation. It's not rape. It's unwanted sexual contact. It's not an assassination. It was just a targeted killing. Uh, you yeah, can what, sanitize. What, is, what did they call it? Uh, it was like targets of interest or high value 
there's all these different person of interest. Yeah, I mean, all these different euphemisms yeah. used. I remember in the high value the, targets, high yeah. value targets, yeah. which which really kind of like you know prettifies. Yeah, it. you don't want to be a high value target. No. if you can avoid it. Yeah, but yeah, it's typically we talk about targeted killing because assassination is a word that has emotional impact. And anyone who's curious about this subject. Read George Orwell's essay, Politics in the English Language, which is, cr- it's crazy that that is not required reading in every grammar school, high school, and college in the land. Uh, if you read it, you'll have a much better idea of how the government manipulates language to manipulate you. Anyway, uh, so you don't, we don't usually think of, of what, for example, President Obama, who has uh, his own assassination list, uh, we don't usually think of it as assassination. We think of drone strikes, and uh, we sanitize the language. It's a drone strike, and there was some collateral damage. Or the intended target of the drone strike was uh, was subject to a targeted killing and was killed or something like that. But it's not usually called um, assassination, and so we don't typically think of the U.S. government as employing assassins, even though we clearly do. I mean, uh, Seymour Hersh wrote a, wrote a great expose of the way JSOC the Joint Special Operations Command was reporting directly to uh, then-Vice President Dick Cheney and uh, was essentially functioning as the Vice President's personal hit squad. By the way, I know some people who are listening, you're probably thinking, if you don't follow this stuff, you're probably thinking that I must be crazy or something like that, and I'm, I'm here with Brad wearing a tinfoil hat in the <laughs> studio. But I'm not. If, you just, um, if you're curious and you want to learn more, just Google uh, Obama hit list, Obama assassination list. This is public knowledge. It's not, it's not even like report, intrepid reporters that piece this sort of thing together. His Obama's counterterrorism advisor, John Brennan, has acknowledged that there's a list. Uh, the former acting general counsel of the CIA, John Rizzo, is now being prosecuted by the government for doing a Newsweek article um, talking about the mechanics of, um, of how the hit list is compiled and how these hits are approved by various bureauc- uh, bureaucratic uh, panels and carried out all in contravention of the fifth, the constitutional fifth amendments guarantee that no American will be deprived of life or liberty without due process of law. So are you talking about a hit list on American citizens? Of course. Anwar al-Awlaki, who was uh, assassinated, who the U.S. government assassinated in Yemen a few months ago, is an American citizen. And then, uh, I don't know, a few weeks or a month later, we assassinated his 16-year-old son, who is also an American citizen. What a lot of people don't realize is... Then they'll, they'll see a picture of Anwar Al-Awlaki or listen to his name. It wasn't Mike Jones or something who, um, who we assassinated. And it wasn't, uh, as, as of yet, on American soil. On American soil, though, we've arrested uh, people and held them incommunicado without even allowing them contact with lawyers. I'm talking specifically about Jose Padilla, the so-called dirty bomber. That's how the government very cleverly branded him, but then was unable to prove any of its allegations in court eventually when it, when uh, court compelled it to, to either uh, try this guy or let him go. The dirty bomber stuff was was unprovable. But anyway, uh, he the was... The dirty bomber. Isn't that great? And, and <laughs> if anyone's curious about this, Google Robert De Niro Saturday Night Live... Uh, dirty bomber, and you'll find a hilarious skit about all this kind of stuff. But um, so this is under the Bush administration. This is a guy who was picked up by by the FBI at Chicago O'Hare and was given no due process whatsoever. He was held in a military brig, completely incommunicado. He was tortured and eventually um, lost his mind as a result. But this, again, is uh, in direct contravention of the Constitution, particularly the, the uh, Fifth Amendment's guarantee that no one will be deprived of liberty. No, no one will be deprived of liberty without due process of law. And, uh, and now Obama has taken it a step further. Not only does Obama claim the power 
to imprison forever uh, Americans who um, who he deems terrorists, even though they have never been uh, charged, tried, or convicted of anything. That was instituted by Bush and is now being carried out by Obama. That that notion, which is about as tyrannical as you can imagine, right? Think about it. I mean, this is this is America, where the president can put someone in a cage forever without charge, trial, or conviction. Think about that for a minute, because that is, in fact, the country we're living in. But if you think that that's as tyrannical as you can get, you'd be wrong. Obama also claims the power to actually execute American citizens uh, based on secret laws and secret findings uh, of secret committees. And that is, I think, about as tyrannical as it can possibly get. Again, if you think these things are crazy, just Google some of the terms I just mentioned. It's in the news, but um, the watchdog media, like the New York Times, because of the way it functions, it might report on something like this once, maybe twice. But then it feels like, well, we've reported on it. Now we have to cover a different story. And I'm much, I'm, I find that I'm much better informed and uh, a lot happier reading uh, reports by um, journalists like Marcy Wheeler, or Jeremy Scahill in The Nation, or Glenn Greenwald, I mentioned, with Salon, who are not so much covering stories as they are trends, disturbing, destructive trends uh, in America today. And every time there's a new piece of evidence um, that sheds some sort of further light on the trends that concern them, for example, uh, um, the undermining of the rule of law in America, or a lack of transparency, the metastasis of secrecy in America, the overuse of, of war as a tool of foreign policy. These are the broad themes and trends that they're covering, and the government uh, provides a steady stream of evidence that further illuminates the way these trends are, um, are undermining and corrupting and corroding American society. So these are people whose uh, who's reporting and commentary I'm much more interested in. I'm not so interested in uh, the kind of media that feels like, well, we touched on that yesterday and now it's time to turn the channel. I don't think that's very good. Okay. So what would you say just to kind of play devil's advocate? Like, uh, and I'm going to forget this guy's name or mangle it, but what was the guy that got uh, the, the American citizen who was killed in Yemen? That's oh, Al Anwar Al-Laki. Al-Laki. Okay. So if you, if you have really good intelligence and you know that this guy is a terrorist or wants to, to do right. harm yes. to American citizens, yes. to innocents. Yes. And you know that he's in Yemen. Yes. And he's, you know, on some remote highway in a, in a car, you know, right. traveling with other people who want to do what he's doing. And he's got, you know, power and a platform and control right. and a brand or whatever you want right, to call right, it. Right. And, you, and it would be harder and maybe even impossible to go in and arrest the guy sure. on foreign soil. Sure. Then a, a drone strike, take him out. Like, I know it's a slippery slope. I mean, is that the argument? Is that the counter argument? That yeah, it's no, that's, that's exactly what um, people of an authoritarian mindset who don't really understand what American democracy and freedom is really all about. That's the argument they typically trot out. He's a dangerous man. How do they know that? The government said so. That's very important to remember, by the way. I mean, Andrew Sullivan, who on many issues is a pretty sensible guy, but when he gets war on the brain, it just completely occludes his judgment and his reasoning. Um, he was actually citing, <clears throat> citing a Wikipedia entry for Anwar Alaki as evidence of the man's guilt and as justification for the government's assassination of Alaki, uh, even in the absence of any public presentation of any evidence of what the government accuses Alaki of having done. And, and of course, in the absence of any charge trial, certainly in the absence of any conviction, uh, this is a guy who's saying, look, Wikipedia says X, Y, and Z. Of course, the government should assassinate him. And if you think about it, 
That's just Wikipedia. a little bit. That's a little bit crazy. Well, we, I love Wikipedia. I, mean, I think no, Wikipedia great, is great. But I mean, just as like but a, as, as a source as, for right. a, a determination to assassinate someone, maybe that's not really the way America is supposed to work. <laughs> so, so yeah, the, the standard authoritarian argument is he's a bad man. Um, uh, he's a, he's posing a danger to the safety of Americans. He's difficult to arrest because he's in some remote place, and so we're justified in blowing him up. But that's crazy. I mean, first of all, a guy like Alaki presumably would pose a greater danger if he were here on American soil, right? I would think, than if he's all the way on the other side of the world. I mean, what if we have some guy who's a scary terrorist with a capital T who's actually here on sacred American soil, capital A, capital S? Um, that's much more of a danger. And what if we don't? What if we have to just shoot the person? Wouldn't that be more efficient than trying to arrest him? You can't arrest everybody you want to arrest. There are people at large in America. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one thing to consider. And then the other thing to consider is this. The whole notion of limited government, of a government that we should inherently distrust. I mean, this should, this until recently, has been in, in America's DNA. It's, it's, the Constitution is imbued with it. This is what, what, what all the Federalist Papers and the Constitution itself are all about. The notion that the government, before putting someone in a cage, before depriving someone of life, liberty, or property, has to prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt. What does that mean in practice? It means that in America... A lot of guilty people will go free. A lot of dangerous people, murderers, arsonists, child molesters, uh, mafioso, and terrorists. We accept that the price of freedom in America is limited government and that the government can't deprive people of life, liberty, or property unless it can prove its case in court beyond a reasonable doubt. And if it can't, we accept that some of these people actually were guilty. We just The government couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And they're going to go free. And what I sometimes say... One of my characters says in the new book, The Detachment, is if you don't like that, why don't you move to North Korea? In North Korea, there are no dangerous people on the streets. The government has swept them all up. They've got a, I'm sure they have a very uh, low rate of street crime, uh, very low rate. They're very safe in North Korea. They don't have to worry about terrorism in North Korea or organized crime or murder or rape or arson or anything else. It's all on lockdown. It's all good. How do you achieve that? By giving the government the kind of unfettered power to make decisions in secret on the presentation of zero evidence, a kind of trust me attitude. Trust me, we can torture, we can imprison forever, and we can even assassinate American citizens because we say they're bad people and we need to do this to them. And then Americans say, look, you're the government. If you say so, I trust you. The very same government, the very same people, by the way, who say the government can't even be trusted to run, I don't know, a system of health insurance or something like that. <laughs> completely trust the government to make determinations on who can be imprisoned forever, who can be assassinated based on secret evidence. That's a monumental logical contradiction, uh, one revealing, I think, uh, what I would describe as an authoritarian mindset and authoritarian personality. And, uh, well, whatever you want to call it, it's radically un-American, and yet it is a serious uh, strain in American thinking today. Okay, so clearly, I mean... This you're passionate about all this stuff. You you obviously uh, put a lot into understanding it deeply. There's a lot of intellect. It seems like there's a lot of intellectual rigor at Thank work you. here. You know, it's a nice and, compliment. I think I think I read about this a lot. I think about it a lot, and I I talk about it a fair amount. Well, yeah. And so with that in mind, you know, you are a writer of thrillers mm-hmm. uh, on the fiction side, and you're you know you're a genre writer of fiction. Right. And so I swim mostly in like the you know the literary side of the pond. It's like literary fiction. And I wonder, 
you know, it seems like, you know, I don't know if you hear this, but do you hear from time to time, like, oh, genre writing, it's fluff, or sure. do you bristle against that? Because, you know, you're writing thrillers, and you are doing so uh, coming from a perspective uh, of pretty deep knowledge. And yeah. w- like, I'm curious to know how you started, w- why do you gravitate towards thriller? Well, you know, it seems like maybe you would be writing uh, nonfiction. You right, know? right. Well, I do try to um, drop fictional characters into non-fictional settings, and the kind of thrillers I've always liked the most are the kind that are the most realistic. In fact, the kind where you might be reading them, not only thinking, hey, this could really happen, but, but you instead are thinking, God, this probably is happening. I love that kind of thriller, and so naturally enough, that's the kind that I like to write. Um, and if, if you're interested in writing, as I am, the most realistic thrillers you can... And I do that, in fact, because I believe that, look, how can I thrill you? How can I frighten you if you, if you doubt the reality of what I'm writing about? I mean, if you can, if you can comfort yourself by saying, oh, this, is, this isn't real, this would never happen, it couldn't be happening, <clears throat> then you won't be nearly as afraid. You won't be nearly as thrilled. For this reason, I include a lot of uh, primary sources in the back of my recent books because, again, I know that in, in the detachment, uh, there are people who... Um, in the detachment, there's reference to the president's assassination list, for one thing. And some readers will say, come on, that's that's bogus. That can't be. So I want you to be able to check my sources on this so that you'll see I'm not making this up. I think if I can persuade you, both by, by my craft, the kind of story I weave overall, but also by, by the use of primary sources and notes at the end of the book, if I can persuade you that this is not only possible, but is in fact happening around us right now, then that ups the ante on the thrill. So that's one thing I'm trying to do. Uh, but then in terms of realism, as a thriller writer, I have to ask myself this. Like I write political thrillers, and the detachment is very much a political thriller. So I have to ask myself, what is um, what are the biggest stakes, realistically speaking? What, what uh, sorts of things are going on in the world, the country today, that have the biggest stakes? Now, many thriller writers answer that question, I think, somewhat reflexively and, in fact, somewhat lazily, by saying, well, Islamic terrorism, that's the big existential threat. We all know that because the government always talks about it. We have little color-coded alerts and that sort of thing. So I'm going to make my villain some Islamist, jihadist, whatever, who hates America for because he hates our freedoms, usually that kind of thing. And he's planted a bomb under a city. And that's, I'm not saying it can't be done effectively, but to me, this is a bit cartoonish and it's certainly not. It doesn't stand up under my test of realism because I believe that the greatest existential threat to American democracy is not terrorism. It's not stateless terrorism. It is our overreaction to the threat of stateless terrorism. Our overreaction poses a much greater danger to our, our society, our democracy, our freedom than the thing we're afraid of itself. It's, it's in, in many ways, it's almost the way a fever works in the body up to a point if there's a pathogen, the body's fever response is designed to inhibit or eliminate the pathogen, and it is an adaptive and helpful response. But sometimes the immune response, the fever response that your body produces in the presence of a pathogen, gets out of control, and the fever itself becomes a far, far more danger to the body, to your life, than the pathogen was ever going to be. And that, to me, is a pretty good metaphor for understanding America's overreaction to the threat of terrorism since 9-11. And because what I want my readers to experience is the, is the greatest realism and the greatest possible thrills, the challenge for me 
is to create villains and antagonists who reflect that realistic and extreme and current danger to American democracy and to our freedom, to the freedoms we've traditionally enjoyed as a democratic society. Uh, that's a challenge for a thriller writer. It's easier to create a villain who's just the personification of evil because he's an Islamic guy and he's brown skin and he has a beard and says mwahahaha and he wants the infidels <laughs> to die. That's not hard. Actually, it is hard. It's hard to do well. But it's an easy concept. But taking the concept of, of an oligarchy, which I write about, of factions in America, media factions, political, military, corporate, financial, who informally work together uh, to preserve their system of profits and position and power uh, because cooperation for them is just more efficient than, co than competition ever would be. To take that kind of a system, we have an oligarchy profiting off an overreaction that it itself has deliberately... Uh, consciously and sometimes unconsciously fostered in America and turn that into a system uh, a, a, into uh, a system of believable characters and uh, and edge of your seat plot realistic settings and action and sex and all the kind of things that make a, a thriller pop that's a real challenge for a novelist and it's one that I feel very fortunate to be able to engage okay well and you know with this book with the detachment, um, you know, before I let you go, I want to talk a bit about the business uh, side of writing because you made a decision with it that, uh, you know, I read about in the news a while back where you turned down a big offer from St. Martin's, correct? Yes. And you decided to publish independently? Yes. So I had a nice uh, two-book offer from St. Martin's Press, which is a terrific uh, New York publisher. It was a half-million-dollar offer for two books. And <clears throat> I decided not to take it and to self-publish the detachment and the next book instead. And why? Yeah, that's the right. It's like really a half million dollars. Um, before I forget, I would say to anybody listening, if you're really interested in this topic, the the whole new landscape of digital publishing, and there is a revolution. It is not too strong a word. No pitchforks, no uh, torches, not that kind of revolution. But but what we're seeing in publishing right now is a kind of insurgency among authors. And the upending of a long-established um, billion-dollar international corporate network that until now has, uh, has existed. Yes, it has served readers and authors up to a point, but it's grown ossified as all uh, systems that uh, lack competition do. And, uh, and there's now an uprising enabled by the advent of digital distribution that is absolutely fascinating to be at the center of. Fascinating. Crazy. Uh, I feel there's never been a better time to be a writer, just as a writer. But if you're also political, as I am, and interested in political systems and the way they work, wow, uh, being uh, being at the center of everything that's going on in the publishing world. It's like revolution. the Wild West. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's fascinating and invigorating. So anyone who's really interested in this, if you go to my website, barryeisler.com, B-A-R-R-Y-E-I-S-L-E-R.com, you can find uh, a book that I co-authored uh, co with uh, another novelist friend, of, a novelist friend of mine, Joe Conrath. The book is called Be the Monkey. You can also find it on Amazon and BNN. They charge 99 cents for it. Well, we charge 99 cents for it on those websites because Amazon and BNN won't let us post it for free. And, and you can find it on Smashwords too. Or you can find it on my website or Joe's website as a free download, digital download. And it's a book, Be the Monkey. It's all about uh, changes, this revolution that we're seeing in publishing. But anyway, um, that's, that's, that'll give you a lot of detail, and it's a lot of fun too, I think. But, but in brief, 
I wanted three things. I wanted a more favorable digital split. Uh, legacy publishers only offer authors 17.5%. That's crazy. It's not sustainable. I don't think it's... Yeah, I mean, I just... I don't understand It's that actually killing them. They just don't understand it. Yeah, because I, mean, I feel like... You know, because I know that, and I've looked at that number, and I also know what you can get if you publish on your own with Amazon, who's offering you a 70-30 exactly. split. Exactly. So what? as soon as authors start to realize that, and they start to realize that... It's not super. It's not cost prohibitive to create an ebook or That's to right. get or to get it into distribution channels. That's right. Why would you take seventeen point five when you can get seven? Well, the reason you would do it there there are various reasons you might do it, and in fact, I, I should say also all these things I can go into a lot of detail, and uh, I have in various places. And one of them is on my friend Joe's website. If you go to J A Conrath, uh, his blog is called A Newbie's Guide to Publishing. If you Google A Newbie's Guide to Publishing, you'll find Joe's website. Or you'll find his blog rather. And, uh, and I posted an article, uh, a post, I don't know, maybe three or four posts ago. So just so, scroll down. And it's on this very topic of how do you decide? What if, what if you have a legacy offer, uh, but you're also thinking about self-publishing or you're thinking about Amazon publishing? How do you decide? That's what the article is about. But, but in brief, look, if what you really want is a more favorable digital split, then it's a no-brainer. You go the self-publishing route. You keep 70, not 17.5. Um, but the the promise, the theory of legacy publishing is that, yeah, sure, we'll pay you only 17.5% or call it 15 if you want to average it out with paper and digital, whatever. We'll, we'll keep 85. We'll pay you 15%. But the promise is that you, the author, will make it up on, on, on volume. And there's, there's some truth to that premise. It's not a nonsensical premise. Uh, the ideal is, is not met very often in New York, but the ideal is not on its face nonsensical. Uh, you only get 15%, but that's because we, New York, we're your big distribution partner. You'll make it up on volume okay. But here's what people need to understand. In a paper world, the only way for a writer to reach a mass audience was with a giant just distribution partner. That is, with a New York legacy publisher. You just needed it. There was a, what are you going to do? Um, have Kinko's print out the book and then drive around the country in your station wagon? It doesn't make sense. You can't make a living that way. You can't meet your, reach a mass audience. But digital has changed everything. And this is a huge concept, and a lot of people haven't really gotten their heads around it yet because it's so big. But here, here's the thing. A lone author today has the exact same distribution reach as a multinational, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in annual revenue, New York-based conglomerate. It's, it's a level playing field. I can distribute my books in digital 100% as effectively as Random House or Putnam or any of the other big New York publishers. No difference. Level playing field. Now, I know that sounds astonishing, but if you think about it, be, I'm saying distribution. The next question is, how do you market and don't you need an editor? And yes, there are a lot of other functions that need to be served. But remember, the, the reason New York was always able to claim 85% of the revenues from a book and give the author only, only 15% was because New York was able to say, but you need us for distribution. Sure, we do a lot of other value-added services, editing, line editing, copy editing, proofreading, package design. They, didn't, they don't always do these things well. In fact, they more often don't do them well at all. But the, the point is that all these other things that I just mentioned are value-added services. The fundamental aspect, the bedrock of their claim to 85% was distribution. And in a digital world, writers don't need publishers to distribute them anymore. So publishers are going to have to figure out how to add some other value or adjust their prices in accordance with their diminished value. It's got to be marketing. That is exactly right. Now it's all a game of marketing. 
But uh, so anyway, so how did I make the decision? I said, well, 70-30 is a better split for me than 17, 70% of me is a better split than 17.5. And over time, I think I can, um, I think I can actually make more money self-publishing the book and keeping 70% of, uh, of the proceeds. And other things that were important to me included control over packaging and other business decisions. I've just, I've been screwed too many times by publisher incompetence, uh, choosing bad titles or, or totally inappropriate and useless uh, cover design. And that can just murder a book. So I really, I, I don't like to see that sort of control. It's been very uncomfortable for me and it's cost and having to see that control has cost me a lot uh, for various books that I've written. So, so that's another thing that was important to me and also time to market. I mean, the best that St. Martin's or any other legacy publisher, uh, who I was talking about the detachment with the best they could offer was a spring 2012 release. And on my own, I knew I could get the book out in early fall. So uh, those are the three things. So a better digital split, creative control, exactly, and then time to market. Exactly. Those three things. And uh, the only way at the time that I, I knew of being able to get those things was self-publishing, which to me is just a fantastic option given my objectives. So I made this announcement and it got a lot of, um, got quite a bit of media attention because nobody had ever turned down this kind of money in favor of self-publishing before. Uh, and then not long after I announced it, I got a call, an email from someone at Amazon who said, hey, we read about what you're going to do. We think it's great. And there's something we want to talk about with you uh, that we think you might like. It would basically be the best of both worlds where you can get everything you wanted out of self-publishing, but we would work together and we would also put our uh, marketing arm behind you. And, and Amazon has a marketing arm that's unlike anything out there. It's certainly unlike anything any legacy pub publisher could possibly even dream about because legacy publishers have no direct uh, – there are tiny exceptions that aren't even worth talking about, but, but – New York publishers do not have any kind of direct-to-consumer relationships. Amazon certainly does. So, um, so I what is their marketing arm that's so rev you know not revolutionary, but maybe it is? Would well, you it's, say? it's their store. I mean, before Amazon became a publisher, which is relatively recent, they got started as a bookseller. And anyone, everyone who's ever ordered a book from Amazon has to do so with an email address, right? So Amazon has the email addresses and the entire book buying history of tens of millions, I don't know at this point, maybe maybe hundreds of millions if, you, if we're going international, but at least tens of millions of people uh, who've bought books from Amazon, Amazon can contact them. Now, they, they have to be careful not to abuse it. You don't want it to feel like spam. But judging from my own experience, when Amazon sends me a targeted email saying, hey, as someone who, uh, recent, who bought uh, Jane Meyer's last book, um, you might like Ron Suskin's new book or something like that, I respond to that uh, many times. So Amazon's been really, really smart about compiling and using the information that they gather just by virtue of selling books to people digitally. And as, so as a few just trivial example, and that's not uh, trivial is the wrong word. This is an easy example. It's not trivial at all because the effects were so massive. Uh, when the detachment came out, Amazon sent an email to everyone who'd ever bought a Barry Eisler book. They just said, hey, um, as someone who bought a Barry Eisler book, we thought you might want to know that he's got a new one coming out, the detachment. And the response was huge. I mean, this is extremely, on the one hand, it's extremely focused. How many copies do you, do you, have, do you have any idea of the numbers? Would you, would you be willing to divulge? Or um, I will just say that um, for the detachment, we took more pre-orders, more digital pre-orders of the detachment than my previous publisher, Ballantine, Random House Ballantine, sold of my previous book, Inside Out, in digital during the life of the book. So it was it was stunning for me to watch how much we were selling even before the book was available. And since then, 
So before and, and before the book was available, at one point, <clears throat> I think it went as high as number eighty-three in the Kindle store. And what that means is that there are only eighty-three, or maybe it's eighty-two books that are selling better in the Kindle store than yours. So I mean, there are millions of titles in the Kindle store. So to be number eighty-three. That's good. I mean, to be in the top 100 is pretty damn impressive. I was briefly in the top 100 before the book was even available. And again, this is because of Amazon's outreach. Um, and then once the book was published and they really started to, um, to, turn, to uh, torque up the, mar- the marketing machine by contacting their mystery and thriller writers list and, doing some, and, and putting uh, ads right on the Amazon homepage, that sort of thing. The book went all the way to number six in the Kindle store, which is just insane. I mean, yeah. I've never had sales like this. In a, in a comparable period in my life, it's been... And uh, Kindle sales, I mean, to the bottom line are great. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean. Absolutely. So, um, so yeah, the detachment has sold more copies and made me more money in a shorter amount of time than anything I've ever published before. And not only that, it has sold more copies and made me more money at a significantly lower price point. I mean, Ballantyne priced inside out at twelve ninety nine digital, which I think is almost punitively high. That's, in my opinion, that's just too high for a book. And by too high, I don't mean fair or unfair. I tend not to think of business stuff in terms of fair. And I mean, you can find things at the margins that I think reasonable people might say, well, that's an unfair business practice. But when it comes to pricing, if we're not talking about necessities like food and water, I don't think of it in terms of fair and unfair. I think, look, what will the market bear? But twelve ninety nine is not the sweet spot price for a digital book. And by sweet spot, I just mean the price at which per unit price times volume equals maximum profits. Uh, we have tons of data indicating that twelve ninety nine is way too high a price. What's the sweet spot? Sub five dollars. Really? Typically. Yeah. And we priced we priced uh, the detachment at five ninety nine, just a little bit higher than that sweet spot price. But I think the there are two ways of looking at it. There's actually only one way, but two sides of, of the equation. What you're seeing now is the book market, the digital market is, uh, it's got, it functions as a continuum where you have brand conscious buyers who will pay a great deal for a digital book. For example, Ken Follett's latest book, uh, Fall of Giants. Putnam priced the digital version of uh, Fall of Giants at, I forget the exact price, but it was over $20. And it was actually about 60 cents higher than the hardback version of the book. Hmm. Now, that is an extremely high, I would even say punitively high price for a digital book. But you know what? That book sold gangbusters in the Kindle store. Ken Follett has a massively strong brand name, and deservedly so. He's a terrific writer. So he's got followers who are so committed to his brand that they'll pay $20 for a digital book. If you're just starting out and no one's heard of you, you might want to try 99 cents so that you have the smallest possible barrier to, you might even want to try giving away the book away for free if you can, to just to try to get some market share, to give people a free taste, to see that they like you, and then maybe you can price a little higher later on. I have a pretty strong brand, uh, a strong sales record, even at twelve ninety nine for a digital book. I mean, uh, Inside Out hit the extended New York Times list. Two of my previous books hit the list. So I know I have numbers. I can sell this many books at twelve ninety nine. But Amazon and I decided that we would actually be able to make more money overall pricing the book at five ninety nine. And that was a collaborative digital. decision. Yeah, that's new too, isn't it? You couldn't even have this conversation with a legacy publisher. They would look at you as though you're speaking Urdu or something. Right? That you just <laughs> that you you had uh, I don't know. You didn't know your place, or maybe they would humor you a little bit. But uh, I told you I could talk on and on about this, Brad, but just one thing to keep in mind. With all this data indicating that the sweet spot price of a book is, let's say, in the $5 zone, why is New York so insistent on pricing its, its digital books at twelve ninety nine and higher? So insistent, in fact, that they, went to, they banded together and went to war with Amazon a couple of years ago uh, in order to implement what is euphemistically known in the business as the agency pricing model. The agency pricing model is just this. Amazon can no longer set the price of the books it sells, not the, the books that it buys from uh, New York publishers. 
the uh, the publishers set the price of the book, and Amazon takes thirty percent of the cut. This is why if you go to Amazon, you'll some, you'll, you'll often see a digital version of a book twelve ninety nine, and underneath that it says this price was set by the publisher. Why? Amazon wants you to know we're sorry we have to charge twelve ninety nine for this book. We used to charge nine ninety nine and less because we think that's better for readers and it's better for us. But now the legacy publishers are making us charge more. And the reason, so you might say, look, well, why are legacy publishers insisting, insisting, they even banded together to force this on Amazon, insisting that Amazon charge twelve ninety nine and higher for digital books, even though we have all this data indicating that the publishers themselves could make more money if they price digital lower. Why is that? It's because the primary imperative of New York legacy publishing is to retard the growth of digital and preserve the position of paper. That's it. That is their business imperative. And and you'll never bring a legacy publishing executive on your show who will cop to this. But it's it's just plain as day if you just follow the money. Why are they not charging less for digital books? They'd actually make more money. Because they're built, New York is built on a system of paper. And they want to do everything they can to preserve paper and retard the growth of digital. Well, and aren't they also trying to compensate for a profit loss on the paper side by charging more for the digital? Sure, that's part of it. But but fundamentally, what they want to do is not make digital too attractive relative to paper. because, And, and that's why. So how do you do that? You hold back the digital release until the paper release is ready. I mean, digital can be released... Digital can be released instantly, and by instantly I mean when the book is done, really done, when it's written, edited, line edited, copy edited, and proofread, and everything. I mean, that's, this book is done. In digital, you can make it available instantly. It's like uploading a, a photo to Facebook. So from the moment it's done, it can be available, let's say, the next day to readers. In the paper world, uh, there's this, there, you've got to have the sales force get out and gin up interest. You've got to actually glue pages together and put books in boxes and ship them to warehouses and points of distribution. Uh, there's a whole paper infrastructure that will take, could be six months, could be 12 months, sometimes it's longer, 18 months. It takes a very long time. Now, you might say, well, that's okay. I mean, paper just takes inherently longer. It's a, it's a, it's an older uh, method. It's a, it's a tangible method of shipping books. And so, of course, it takes longer by its nature. No problem there. But now we also have digital. Why don't we just release the digital when it's ready, which is instant, and release the paper a little later on when it's, when it's ready? And the reason for that is obvious, because if publishers did that, then more people would get attracted to digital. If you could buy a $6 book in digital today or wait 6 to 12 months and buy that same book at $18, how much more interested would you become in buying that new $79 Amazon Kindle device? You might say, you know what, this is crazy. I don't want to wait a year for a paper book that costs twice or three times as much as the digital book that's available right now. So if New York publishers release digital when it's ready and they priced it as it should be priced so that they could make uh, the maximum amount of money from digital itself, they'd be, they would be accelerating the overall shift to digital. And in a digital world, New York loses its lock on power, which is all about paper distribution. So the, the imperative in New York is to, is to do everything they can, again, to retard the growth of digital and preserve the position of paper. That's what the whole New York system is built on, paper distribution. The, the quasi-monopoly that New York is, and if anyone from New York is listening, I don't mean to insult you. Um, I like you all personally, but you are part of a system that has, has not faced meaningful competition pretty much ever. And... Uh, and in the absence of competition, a number of unhelpful suboptimal business practices will inevitably arise, not because you're evil, but because you're human. And among those practices 
are, for example, a 17.5% digital royalty for authors, which is, which is no longer supportable or sustainable and ultimately a suboptimal even for your longevity. Um, and across, that sort of across-the-board royalty. All sorts of opaque, obtuse, and overlong contracts uh, that New York insists on because um, it t- they take longer to negotiate it until the deal is done. New York doesn't have to pay anybody in advance. Royalty statements that are absolutely indecipherable by design so that nobody knows what's really going on. And, and these royalty statements are typically released, I don't know, six months from the end of the applicable royalty period. So again, New York can hold the money for as long as possible. I mean, these are things that could not exist. You guys know it as well as I do. These things could not exist in a system that faced meaningful competition. So um, I actually am I'm extremely excited about the advent of self-publishing and uh, the entry of Amazon as a publisher because these two things together, self-publishing and Amazon publishing, are putting unprecedented competitive pressure on New York. And what I want to see is not for New York to die. I want New York to get better. I sometimes say, when someone's sick, you don't want them to die. You want them to get well. I don't want New York to perish. I want Amazon to have competition too. I want there to be as many choices as possible for authors because that's good for authors. And with all that competitive choice available, it's going to be good for readers too. We're going to have lower prices, uh, more, more choice, and better, more efficient, faster means of distribution that will ultimately serve readers and authors and, uh, and also the publishers who are, who are able to up their game in the face of the competitive pressures I just described. So I actually want New York to thrive in the face of this new competition. Petition, but to do so, they've got to step up. They've got to abandon these anachronistic, uh, quasi-monopolistic practices that they've used to keep out newcomers and preserve their position heretofore. And they've got to start implementing more enlightened, progressive, and ultimately competitive business, business practices rather than anti-competitive ones. And if they do that, the world will be a much better place. And, uh, and I'm, I'm cheering them on in their, uh, in their slow and uh, slightly clumsy efforts to do so. You think it's going to happen? Like, how do you see the future? Like, give me five years from now, where are we? I don't, I wouldn't bet much on New York's ability to reform and thereby to survive because when you've been coddled by a monopoly or a cartel or a quasi-monopolistic system for as long as New York has, um, your competitive reflexes degenerate. I mean, it's like a it's like a boxer who never trains or who never faces real competition. It's just human. You a get, judo fighter, for example. Yeah, you get lazy. You don't have a real rival, uh, and you don't really have to train. It's just it's just human nature. We're all fairly lazy if you think about it. I mean, Seinfeld used to have this routine about uh, about how we're so lazy that once we've sat down, we'll do almost anything not to, not to get up. You know, you've sat down and, and your wife will say something like, "Oh, you know, honey, can you get this thing for me?" It's like, you know, babe, I just sat down. And so, you know, but if the house is on fire, getting up is not a, a particularly um, significant impediment. You can get up if you have a reason to. We just need, as humans, we need a reason. And New York has not had a reason. But what happens is those competitive, adaptive reflexes degenerate over time in the absence of competition. And, uh, and New York has relied for so long on its lock on distribution, which is becoming less and less meaningful by the day, that I don't know if they have it within them to adapt. I'm slightly encouraged by certain developments. Uh, Penguin has launched um, a subsidiary called Book Country that's doing some really interesting things for authors and readers. And I think of Book Country and other experiments that are being conducted like Book Country, Country as a kind of um, escape pod that uh, that the mothership has built so that as the mothership's orbit decays and it starts to burn up in Earth's atmosphere, the uh, the employees can can get on the escape pod and and establish some kind of more stable off, uh, uh, orbit. 
So I think, you know, people sometimes ask me, well, do you think all New Yorker, all New Yorker, all legacy publishers are all going to be bankrupt in five years? I don't really know exactly what the end game will look like, but I don't think in five years it's very hard for me to imagine that you're going to see New York publishers in anything like their current form. They're going to be smaller. They're going to try to offer a different kind of mix of services, value-added services. Like Book Country, they're going to start charging for services instead of buying the book. Uh, from the author and then providing the services as, as part of um, as part of the overall advance that they've paid in, in exchange for the 85% that they take, they're going to start offering those sorts of services for a fee as Book Country does. So it's not that you know matter can be neither created nor destroyed. It's not like um, it's it's not like New York is going to disappear in a puff of smoke. But these legacy publishers are going if to the extent that they're able to survive, they're going to have to reform so radically that their their business models and their value-added services will, in the end, be extremely different from what we see today, radically different. Wow. Well, this has been enlightening. I uh, I wish you all the best with uh, the detachment. Thanks, Brad. And uh, it was great talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay, folks, there you have it. That's the show. There's uh, Barry Eisler. What a good guest. He can be found online at BarryEisler.com. Uh, that's Barry, B-A-R-R-Y, and then Eisler is E-I-S-L-E-R. He's on Twitter, at Barry Eisler. He's on the Facebook as well. This show can be found online at OtherPeoplePod.com. Uh, it's on Twitter, at OtherPeoplePod. I'm on Twitter, at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And again, if you want to email, it's letters at OtherPeoplePod.com. Don't forget to check out TheNervousBreakdown.com and follow it on Twitter at TNB Tweets. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for the great music. Check them out at killrockstars.com. And, uh, you know, if you haven't subscribed yet to this show, to this program, please do that. It's over at iTunes. It's free. If you haven't done it already, what are you waiting for? And uh, if you like the show, here's something I would beg of you. Please take one minute or maybe two to go over to iTunes and rate the program and maybe even write a little review. Uh, That helps, and I certainly would appreciate it. So please consider doing that. Please at least ponder it. So last thoughts, closing thoughts. I think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still, I'm still kind of chewing on the whole, uh, issue of, uh, commodification, the commodification of artists, the selling of products, uh, using the artist's likeness, usually after the artist is dead. That's how it usually you know, seems to work. And uh, I know that this happens with actors. You've seen it happen with Marilyn Monroe, who, uh, is a prominent one. She's kind of a brand at this point. That's how she lives. She's on, uh, you know, coffee mugs and whatnot. So, you know, that happens, and uh, I think, it. you know, Elvis is another one. Elvis seems to be, you know, the musician side of it, though he was kind of a musician slash actor. And then, you, you know, sometimes dead political leaders can take this on. I'm thinking in particular of uh, Che Guevara. Now that guy's like an industry at this point. So, you know, what about writers, and how are writers, uh, how does this happen with them? How are they commodified? And, and, you know, can we be? Can writers sell products anymore? I mean, is, is Jack Kerouac soap, is that really going to sell? You know, are people really going to snatch that up? And, uh, you know, the only thing I think when, when I actually sit, you know, sit here and try to uh, suss it out, it, don't, it seems to me that the only real thing that I can imagine commodifying a writer uh, with or, you know, some kind of product that would be affiliated with a writer that would make sense is like a drink. You know, or like I'm just it's hard to it's hard to imagine what writer based products other than books might actually be selling like maybe like a notepad an ink pen 
uh you know like what are, like it's but you go like in other directions and it's just it seems absurd like you know how many sylvia plath dolls are out there or uh you know f scott fitzgerald like it seems to me he would just have like a brand of gin named after him like f scott vermouth or uh, something along those lines so i don't know uh you know i'm confused by it and uh you know i'm troubled by writing related soaps that smell of sunflower and powder like some sort of unknown powder. I don't know what the point of that is, and I don't know what to make of it really. But uh, one thing I can tell you, and I mean this sincerely, you can never trust a man who smells like poetry.